Welcome to the No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory, but never won the big one. I am your host, Gen Xer and sports geek, Peter Shaw, and I'm joined remotely by my co-host, who's shorter, younger, probably better looking, definitely more athletic, Tim Shaw. Hello there, sports fans, Bolts fans, close but no cigar fans, and Pete, I may be better looking, but you can squat more. I'd like to believe so. So today, we're going to be talking about the 1979 to 1983 San Diego Chargers. Not the LA Chargers, but the San Diego Chargers. Um, So full disclosure before we start, uh, my brother discovered the Chargers in 1978. I did a year later. We grew up in New York. We kind of fell in love with the lightning bolt uniforms. Their offense was exciting. Four o'clock, we turn on a game after watching a miserable Jets or Giants game at one o'clock. And the 4, 4 p.m. games on NBC had the Chargers playing the Broncos or the Raiders or the Seahawks, and it was sunny in San Diego. And it just looked amazing, and the Chargers were exciting to watch. So, you know, outside of their 1994 season, which we kind of call a lightning in the bottle, so to speak, where they went all the way to the Super Bowl and then got completely eviscerated by a superior Niners team, They've really been mostly disappointing and heartbreaking to us. But we're going to focus on a particular era of heartbreak where the team was really quite dominant in so many ways, but really did not reach the promised land and a Vince Lombardi trophy. One other disclosure, the team did draft a safety at a Northwestern University in 1977 named Pete Shaw, but that is a total coincidence and we are of no relation. Shameless plug real quick before we get going on the meat of the story for a friend of the pod, fellow New York Chargers fan, Ross Warner. He recently published an awesome book called Drunk on Sunday about his obsession with the Chargers and the Grateful Dead. I don't know if Oprah has endorsed it yet, but I recommend you pick it up. It is better than Exley's of fans notes in regards to an obsession about a football team. Um, So let's get going with the backstory. So the Chargers were an expansion team in the uh, new AFL, one of eight teams in 1960. It actually played one year in L.A., where they are now, unfortunately. Um, they were initially owned by Baron Hilton, who owned all the Hilton hotels. And just a little, little trivia fun facts. The original AFL teams included the Dallas Texans, who became the KC Chiefs, the Houston Oilers, who became the Tennessee Oilers, and then the Tennessee Titans, the New York Titans, and who are now the New York Jets, the Denver Broncos, who are still the Denver Broncos, the Buffalo Bills, who are still the Buffalo Bills, even though their bison is now charging where it used to be stationary on the helmet, the Oakland, now Vegas Raiders, and the Boston, now New England Patriots. So as I mentioned before, after a year, they moved from L.A. to San Diego. Now their first coach was Hall of Fame offensive guru Sid Gilman, who led them to the Western Division um, uh, Championship First places, first place finishes in four of the first five years in the league. So they made it to all those AFL championship games or only two four-team four divisions. However, they only won one, which was a 1963 blowout over the Boston Patriots, which unfortunately only exists really in um, cool color photos, but black and white grainy footage. Now, this, is, um, this was kind of a groundbreaking team, not just their offense or offensive stars we'll talk about in a second, They had really hardcore training camps out in the desert, really to get away from it all, train the guys hard. Unfortunately, they may have been also the first uh, team to encourage, if not 
supply prescription drugs for the, pa for the uh, patients, I should say, for the football players, including amphetamines and early forms of anabolic steroids. So Tim, do you wanna run down some of these um, stars that these early chargers had? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, they had some great players, Hall of Fame players like Lance Bambi Allworth, who had one of the original Mitchell and Ness throwback jerseys that everyone really wanted back in the day. Running backs Paul Lowe and Keith Lincoln, Earl Faison, John Hadle, uh, Ernie Big Cat Ladd, one of my favorite personalities, became a heel of a wrestler, and Ron Mix, another Hall of Famer, became a lawyer. But, you know, after all these successful years, Chargers really sank into mediocrity as all these players naturally age. They're mostly on the downsides of their careers by the time the AFL and NFL officially merged in 70. Fun fact, though, you know, talk about, like, the coaching tree of the 49ers and Bill Walsh, yada, yada, yada. Future NFL coaches Chuck Knoll of Steelers fame and Al Davis of the Raiders were assistants under Stid Gilman in the 60s. And the San Diego State of the coach, cross, uh, San Diego State coach, cross town, would bring his team to practice to watch Gilliam's team in action. His name was Don Coriel. Remember that name for later. All right. Thank you, Tim. Now, the, um, now the owner early on I mentioned was Baron Hilton, but he was eventually uh, bought out by Gene Klein. Gene Klein was a kid from the Bronx, uh, where we were both born. Our mom was born. We didn't know him. But because he moved out to California, made a ton of money selling used cars, and he, and he owned a bunch of movie theaters where he purportedly made the popcorn extra salty to sell more beverages. He was kind of brash and shrewd, made a lot of money through other investments, tried to bring an American League baseball franchise to California in 1960, the team that would become the Angels, but the major leagues awarded to Gene Autry, the singing cowboy. He actually was part of the group that helped bring the Supersonics to Seattle, where sadly they left to become the Oklahoma City Thunder, but that's another story. Damn you, Starbucks and Howard Schultz. Exactly. I wish they were still in Seattle. <laughs> um, and he eventually led a group of investors to buy the Chargers in 66. Um, we'll talk about the good decisions he made, the bad decisions he made down the road. And he eventually sold them in 84. And... In his autobiography, First Down in a Billion, which Tim and I both have sadly read, actually it's entertaining, and I still own, he said, like, a man who owns a boat and sells it, it those, are the, uh, those are the best days of his life, the day he bought the Chargers and the day he sold the Chargers. So the Chargers were bought by Klein in 66. As Tim alluded to, you know, they, they declined. Everybody got older. Uniforms are still cool, but they were older. Their, play, their players retired, got hurt you know, got traded away. So they were pretty poor to mediocre and got so desperate even in 1973, they bought in a rickety old Johnny Unitas at the age of 40, which is old for a football player, but not old for a human being. I keep reminding myself. <laughs> and um, he came in, he didn't really have much success, but he did take time to mentor a clean shaven rookie who was drafted 64th overall out of the university of Oregon. Now at Oregon, this fresh faced guy, threw for 34 touchdowns and 54 interceptions, not a great ratio. Um, he replaced Johnny Unitas early in the season, but didn't do much better and didn't even win a start. He threw three interceptions and only six touchdowns in his rookie year, and his name was Dan Fabs. Legend. Legend. Living legend. Legend. Now, the Chargers still had cool uniforms, as I mentioned. They still had great weather. They had a promising young quarterback, but really not much else until 1978. 
78, these Chargers were 1-4, and four, including the, losing the famous Holy Roller game versus the Arch Enemy Raiders. Now, the Raiders were losing, and on the last play of the game, Ken Stabler, their quarterback, scrambled, fumbled the ball forward. It got shoveled into the end zone by tight end Dave Casper, who recovered it, fell on it. The refs didn't know what to do, so they gave him a touchdown, and the Chargers lost. Still hurts to watch. As a result, they changed the rules that the only under two minutes, the only person that can recover a fumble um, if it goes forward is the person who fumbled. So a little too little, too little too late for the Chargers. They were one and four, and Gene Klein said, man, this team sucks. The coach sucks. He got rid of Tommy Prothrow and brought in Don Coriel, who's very offensively minded. I mentioned, we mentioned him earlier. He used to coach San Diego State. Even earlier in his life, he played at UW. Go dogs. Go dogs. He worked up the coaching ranks. As I mentioned, San Diego State, he coached here 12 years. And that impressive record, 104 wins, 19 losses, and two ties, including three undefeated seasons. He then went on to coach the St. Louis Football Cardinals, who are now sadly in Arizona. And he coached them to three 10-win seasons, which if you're a Cardinals fan, you know is no small feat. They won two division titles in five years. Yet eventually the Cardinals ownership got tired of him and fired him. And this was the Chargers' good fortune. So he took his scowl, his polyester pants that were jacked up a little too high, and his offensive wizardry to sunny San Diego. Pete, now, little, little, excuse me, Pete, a little trivia. Do you know who those two ties were at San Diego State? I do not, Tim. Do well, you? It really, I don't either. It doesn't really matter. Who gives yeah, a shit? I, okay, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> cares. <laughs> so, so Coriel immediately made an impact. The Chargers won seven of their last eight games to finish a respectable nine and seven. They didn't make the playoffs, but they put up an average of 40 points over their last three games. And he already had some offensive weapons, so it wasn't like the cupboards were, the cupboards were bare. He already had Bouts, who was starting to get better and better, and he grew a beard, so he looked a little bit more like a, an intimidating mountain man. He had a meticulous possession receiver, number 18, Charlie Joyner, who came from the Bengals in 76, and for a couple of years was the all-time leading receiver in the NFL, but has since been eclipsed. And then a spectacular, bespeckled rookie wide receiver known as the Space Age wide receiver out of Arizona State named John Jefferson. But what did his fans call him? Oh, Space Age goggles, JJ, my fave of all time. So JJ was the bomb. Now, he made the all-rookie team that year and his first Pro Bowl once Coriel really came aboard and said, Fouts, throw it to JJ every freaking down. So J.J. scored eight touchdowns in the last six games, which is not too shabby, and finished the season with 13 scores and 1,000 yards for a rookie on a mediocre team. Now, they had this beefy young offensive line. They were really starting to gel. Their defensive front, which was really starting to get hungry and starting to put pressure on the quarterback, was showing some promise. So we were thinking Coriel might be on to something. So then we move on to the meat of the story the 1979 season. So Coriel had all these weapons, and the 79 season, they came out, came out of the gates firing on all cylinders like last season never, ever ended. The offensive coordinator was Joe Gibbs. Uh, obviously, Joe Gibbs went on to coach the Redskins to three Super Bowl wins, and he owns a racing team now. And the wide receiver coach at the time was Ernie Zampezi, who would become a top offensive coordinator for both the Rams, and the Cowboys. Now, in 79, Fouts threw for 24 touchdowns. 
and at that time, which was a very impressive 4,000 yards. Now, those numbers don't seem like a lot in, current NF- in the current NFL season, but there was no other 4,000-yard passer before Dan Fouts except one season by a guy named Joe Willie Namath for the New York Jets. Since Fouts did it, there have been 86 seasons where quarterbacks threw more than 4,000 yards and 12 5,000-yard passing seasons. So put it in perspective, Fouts was only the second guy ever to do it. So this was kind of a big deal. He was named first-team All-Pro for the first time that year. And when he walked around Chargers training camp and meetings, he wore a hat that said MFIC on it. And what did that stand for, Tim? Oh, can I, can I cuss? Would mom get mad at us? We're not rated. Head motherfucker in charge. Exactly. That's motherfucker in charge. So he acted like it, and he, he really led by example on the field. Now, that year, Jefferson Joyner each surpassed 1,000 yards receiving. Both went to the Pro Bowl. J.J., who had 13 touchdowns as a rookie, got 10 in his sophomore season. So no sophomore slump for that man. Um, with the 13th pick of the draft that year, they took this tall, lean, athletic tight end named Kellen Winslow, who just graduated from the University of Missouri. Now, Winslow uh, would only catch 25 balls that year and two touchdowns, but he was just getting started. The right side of their O-line went to the Pro Bowl. Former Viking Ed White and Mammoth Russ Washington, two large sizes of beef, protected Dan Fouts. The Chargers had a platoon of running backs. They were great. They weren't great. They were pretty solid. They had Clarence Williams who was their leading rusher. He had four touchdowns actually in one game against the Bills that year. Um, And as a whole, the team ran for 25 touchdowns, mostly from short yardage. So this was a team that passed, passed, passed. They got to the one-yard line, and they gave it to Clarence Williams or some other guy. They put up the second most points in the NFL and let up the second least points in the NFL, even though most people who remember the Chargers of this era remember that they were only an offensive team. This defensive team actually gave them balance. Now, their defense, they were plus 11 turnovers. Two D linemen went to the Pro Bowl, future Hall of Famer Fred Dean and Gary Big Hands Johnson. The rest of the DL was really solid, too. They had Leroy Jones, who was a menacing guy off the end, and Louis Kelter, a beefy Texas boy from SMU who would just gobble up running backs. So, and he also made a cameo appearance in the North Dallas 40. A good movie with Nick Nolte, which is supposed to be about the Dallas Cowboys in the 70s. They had a decent linebacking core, some ball hawking D-backs. Their special teams were kind of mediocre, but this team was pretty balanced. They were built to win now. So the and then the team, on top of all that, underwent an aggressive marketing campaign. They dubbed themselves Air Coriel after the prolific passing attack, and Gene Klein's son Michael put out a request for a local band to put up a theme, to make a theme song to pump up the crowd at home games. And under the name Captain QB and the Big Boys, a group of local musicians released a single that year as a 45 RPM, which is vinyl to those, those youngins, and had a disco beat, and it was called the San Diego Superchargers.
All right, now we think that's a heck of a lot more fun and less annoying than the Bears 1985 Super Bowl shuffle and the offensively bad Let's Ram It, which was put out by the LA Rams in 1986. And also, excuse me, if I could jump in, Pete, also was a theme song of many a prison back in the day. Exactly, exactly. It sounds like either a bad girl prison film or just an amateur porn video. (laughs) Um, But this was an NFL team trying to, you know, ride the wave of rap music in the mid-80s. You should watch this on YouTube. I'm not going to play the song um, on this podcast because it's just, it's a waste of our time. But it's worth your time to watch it on YouTube. It sucks in such a glorious way. Every member of the team is out there dancing and singing their own little rap lyrics. Each one has their own verse. And it's so bad. This is an example. Offensive lineman Dennis Hanna. I'm a mountain man from West VA. They call me Herc and I came to play. I learned long ago to ram it just right so you can ram it all day and ram it all night. (laughs) Wow. Definitely not winning a Grammy with those freaking lyrics. No, no. So there's too much to unpack in those lyrics. I'll just say, holy shit, that's a horrendous song. The video is horrible. And there are two Hall of Famers featured in the video, Eric Dickerson and Jackie Slater. And both of them should be removed from the Hall of Fame and have their bus removed just because <laughs> they were in that video. I think that's enough to totally tarnish their careers. That's just me. So this disco hit uh, by Captain QB and the Big Boys it's, you know, it dates it a little bit, but it's always going to have a special place in the heart of Chargers fans from that era. And uh, it became a huge favorite of ESPN sportscaster Chris Berman, who would always sing about it. So enough about the song. So the Chargers that year, they had a great disco soundtrack playing at the games, awesome lightning bolt uniforms, an offense that sounded like a budget airline. And just an, they were an offensive juggernaut, and they had a solid defensive team that took no bump. So they went out there, and they went 12-4 and four and won a very tough AFC West division by two games over the Broncos and over the, um, the Chiefs and the Raiders. They were all pretty competitive at that time. The Seahawks were not yet competitive. So during that season, they even pummeled both eventual Super Bowl teams. They beat up the Pittsburgh Steelers 35-7 and the pre-Let's Ram at Rams 40-16, which was an absolute beatdown of a good team. They did have a blowout loss to the hated Raiders, but other than that, their three losses were by an average of five points. Amazing. So this was a team that had a very good year. So they roll into the 79 playoffs, which is the next chapter of our story, tied for the best record in the AFC with the Steelers. So they got a first-round bye. Now their second-round opponent would be the wild-card Houston Oilers, who had eked out a six-point win over the Broncos in the wild-card round. San Diego was the home team. The weather was a sunny 60-degree day. All systems were a go. And to add to the excitement, for Chargers fans, that is, the Oilers' first-round victory was a Pyrrhic one in that their starting quarterback, Dan Pastorini, was injured and was going to be replaced by Gifford Nielsen, who has no relation to the TV ratings. Their running back was a guy you may know called Earl Campbell. He was a human battering ram. Tyler Rose. Yeah. What's that? With Tyler Rose. Exactly. Anyone who watched him play knew that he was one of the most unstoppable running backs ever. That year, he was the NFL MVP. He ran for almost 1,700 yards and 19 touchdowns, but he got so banged up by the end of the year. That's called wear and tear. He was replaced by a three-headed running back by committee. 
that was much less, much less intimidating than Cerberus, the dog that guards the gates of hell. There were guys named Rob Carpenter, who would go on to be mediocre for the Giants, Tim Wilson, and Cincinnati Bengals cast off Booby Clark. That is correct. His name was Booby. You said Booby. I said Booby. <laughs> if his name was Breast, I would say Breast. Now, the Chargers were eight-point favorites at home, and the things, things started off pretty good. They took the ball, they moved right down the field on their first drive, and they capped off an 81-yard march with a Clarence Williams one-yard touchdown run like they did the whole year. So what could go wrong? I will tell you. I'll tell you what could go wrong. This was the era before coaches had transmitters in the quarterback's helmet so they could tell them the plays. So the Chargers staff used hand signals to communicate from Joe Gibbs the play into Fouts, who was in the hub. Now, Houston defensive coordinator, so the story goes, Andy Biles, decoded the Chargers' hand signals relatively early in the game and relayed the plays before they even happened to the middle linebacker, Greg Bingham, who told everyone where to go. Now, I doubt the Chargers' signals were really as complex as like the Navajo Wind Talkers code that helped beat Japan in the Pacific. But come on, man, the Chargers really must have half-assed their signals. Must have been one if by land, two if by sea type crap. So the Oilers' D knew everything the Chargers were going to do before they did it. And as a result, Dan Fouts, who had a spectacular year, threw five interceptions. Four of them went to undrafted free agent safety Vernon Perry, who had previously played for the Montreal Alouettes in the CFL. Not only that, Perry blocked a field goal that the Chargers attempted and returned it 57 yards to set up an Oilers field goal. So this guy had the game of his life, and it just destroyed the Chargers. Despite all that, despite the Oilers knowing what the Chargers were going to do before the Chargers did it, the Chargers were only down by 3.17-14 after a Booby Clark touchdown and a Mike Renfro touchdown. Tim, you know what I just said again? Booby. I said Booby. Now, the Chargers got the ball one last time, but everybody knew what they were going to do, and they were passing, passing, passing. And their last-ditch drive was diffused when Perry got his final interception of the day when Fouts was trying to hit J.J. with two seconds left. So the fat and very tan lady in San Diego sang her song. Now, the Oilers, they would travel to Three Rivers Stadium and under horrendous conditions would play the eventual Super Bowl champion Steelers who completely dismantled them. Now, we'll never know if the Chargers could have met the same fate, but can a brother dream? However you slice it, the 1979 Chargers fizzled. But that gave us a little bit of hope going into 1980. Right, so the Chargers licked their wounds, but they kept their core together. Their defense, unfortunately, slid a little, but their offense still was still cranking out points, and they scored the fourth most points in the NFL. Dan Fouts took his game to the next level. 4,715 yards and 30 touchdowns. And that was definitely helped by the emergence of one tight end, Kellen Winslow, who had joined the dominant Jefferson Joyner uh, tandem. And they became the first trio to have 1,000 yards each for a season. And J.J. led the entire NFL in his third year with over 1,000 yards. And he got 13 touchdowns that year. So, Tim... J.J., 13-10-13 in his first three years. 
Yeah, and also you mentioned before he, you know, at a thousand yards his rookie season, he was one of I hate to jump in, one of only three receivers who recorded a thousand receiving yards in the first three seasons. Mike Evans and Hall of Famer Randy Moss were the only ones to do that. Amazing back in this time. Like you said it so well, Pete, where it was really a defensive-minded league. It was not as opened up as it is now with all these crazy stats. So, JJ, exactly. I think I have more memorabilia of JJ than his whole family has combined. So Probably, probably. You probably look a little bit like a stalker if you saw your den. But, <laughs> no, but he was, he was spectacular to watch. He made the cover of Sports Illustrated. Um, he, was just, he was just amazing. Which is so, above my toilet, by the way. Oh, gee, wonderful. But to a TMI, TMI. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. You know? TMI. So after four games, they were undefeated, and, but the strong got stronger because they traded for a big, fast running back from the New Orleans Saints who was a Uniontown PA native and a Calum named Chuck Muncie. Now the Saints were floundering, and Muncie actually ran for 1,000 yards the previous year when he became their first pro bowler in team history. However, Muncie didn't always show up to the meetings. The team kind of got tired of him, so they traded him to the Chargers, and Muncie could not have been happier. He fit right in. He started five of the remaining games and ran for 650 yards and four touchdowns in the last five games. So the Chargers finished the season 11-5. and Um, They went 2-1, and against that year's Super Bowl uh, participants. And they even beat the defending Super Bowl champs, the Steelers, on the last Monday night football game of the season, a game I remember watching with you, Tim. Yep, I slept in your room that night on the trundle. Exactly. The trundle. (laughs) Memories, memories. So then now we're on to the 1980 playoffs. Now, the first playoff game was again home because the Chargers had uh, won the AFC West. They were hosting the AFC East champion Buffalo Bills, who had the identical record. They probably got the home game because they had cool uniforms. I think that was the tiebreaker in the 80s. And if you had a better theme song, I don't know what the Bills theme song was. Now, it was another sunny day in San Diego, low 60s. Chargers were six-point favorites. Now, the Chargers – now, the uh, – the Bills defensive coordinator did not decipher the Chargers' plays, so that's a good thing. Chargers drew first blood. They came down, and Rolf Benershka, their kicker, put it through, and they were up 3 nothing. But in the second quarter, the Bills would score back-to-back touchdowns and go up 14-3. to This is a pretty good Buffalo Bills team, Tim. Do you remember them? They had, yeah. They had Fer- Joe Ferguson was a quarterback. They had Joe Cribbs, a running back. Frank Lewis, wide receiver. They'd lost Smurlis, I think, was a nose tackle. Yes, yeah, Smurlis was the guy with the big mustache, and he, he blocked up the yeah. D line. The redheaded defensive yeah. back, Bill Simpson, who had starred for the Rams and it was yep. now on the Bills. Yep. And, Pete, I remember it was so fresh because they were heavily favored. Watching in our basement, That's this was the start of my sports craziness and fanat- uh, uh, fanatical behavior. I literally went to change the mojo. I refused to watch in the basement. I ran all the way upstairs to mom and dad's room, watched it by myself with mom like doing the crossword puzzle, waiting for them to deliver some good mojo, trying to switch up the uh, momentum there. And I think, right, well, I think it helped. I do, um, I do. I think, I think you turned that game around because San Diego took the opening kickoff of the second half. 
drove 70 yards, and Fouts hit Charlie Joyner, all reliable on a nine-yard touchdown uh, route. So now they were down 14 to 10. Moving on to the fourth quarter, the Chargers got another Bernershka field goal and only trailed by one point, 14 to 13. Now, the Bills came down and they missed a field goal. It was not Scott Norwood. He, this is much before that, so don't – Too soon, too soon for Bills fans. Too soon, too soon, Bills fans. Um, and then the Chargers had the ball at that point with four minutes left at their own 31-yard line. Now, the Chargers offense at this time, they, if they had no timeouts and the ball anywhere on the field, you know they, can, they were going to get a shot at scoring. No matter how much time was left, they, they, you had confidence. So they began to drive, and then um, they got to midfield and fouls to an errant ball on an out pattern right into the chest of Buffalo cornerback Charles Rome, who had nothing but daylight in front of him, yet magically he dropped it, probably because you were watching on mom's bed, Tim. Now, with two minutes and eight seconds left in the game, the Chargers still have the ball, and Fouts drops back, and did he throw to Winslow? Did he throw nope. to Jefferson? No. Did he throw to Joyner? Hell no. Did he throw to Muncie? No, not even Greg McCrary. Not even Greg McCrary. That guy was good. So who did he throw to? Oh, Ron Smith. You know who. Ron Smith. Ron Smith, a little-used wide receiver, caught a 50-yard post over the middle to win the game 20-14. to 14. The dude had caught four passes and no touchdowns all year, yet he made this mother count. So the Chargers had won 20-14, to 14, their first playoff win since their title win in 1963 when Keith Lincoln, who recently passed away, sadly, run ragged over the Boston Patriots. So now the Chargers were on to the AFC Championship game which they were going to host in San Diego. They didn't even have to get on a bus. And they were hosting their arch rival, sadly, the Oakland Raiders, a wild card team who had beaten the Oilers and the Browns in successive weeks to get to the AFC final. Now, the Chargers were ready to rumble, but things did not start off as planned. So this, I remember this so vividly in slow motion. Early in the game, the Raiders had the ball first. Quarterback Jim Plunkett dropped back, threw a pass over the middle into coverage. It was tons of people in the middle of the field. The Charger defender stuck up his hand, deflected the ball at the Raiders' 35-yard line, and it ricocheted into the arms of Raiders' tight end Raymond Chester. Now, Chester looked a little bit shocked that he even caught it at the 45 but once he realized he caught it, he turned around and ran upfield and ran, outran the entire Chargers secondary to score a touchdown. So the Chargers and fans were in shock, and they were down 7 nothing. And the Chargers were thinking, not again. So Fouts got the ball back. He immediately marched the team down the field and hit Joyner on a long touchdown pass to make it 7-7. Yet somehow that didn't turn the tides. It didn't turn around the mojo, no matter how, which room we watched this game in, it wasn't going well. And actually both of us sat up on mom's bed and it was dad's bed too. Dad was allowed to sleep there as was the dog on occasion. So we don't want to make it sound like mom and dad slept in separate beds like the fifties. So we're up on our parents' bed and we watch in horror as the Raiders score the next three touchdowns to go up 28, seven in the second quarter. 
Unfortunately, the Chargers never really recovered, and they ended up losing 34-27. to But that final scoreline flatters them because they were never really in it after that deflected pass from Plunkett to Raymond Chester. So another team that looked so promising, their season short-circuited. And when my parents came up to check on me and Tim to see how the game was going, as they were rolling the credits and naming the names of the sound guys and what was up next on NBC, we sat on their bed weeping, just weeping, because the Chargers lost another close one. Now, they did get one game closer to the Super Bowl that year, but it was the Raiders who would advance down to New Orleans, and they would go on to beat the favored Philadelphia Eagles. Um, and every um, Charger fan alive knows that the Raiders – that the Chargers would have killed the Eagles. Yeah, what killed me with this, we have, well, let's be honest, a lot of Charger fans have Raider envy. Um, the Raiders, you know, when they won the wild card game to get into this against Cleveland, like a reliable kicker, Don Cockroft, missed, I think, two to three field or three field goals in a blizzard condition. And Brian Sype, from, who went to San Diego State, by the way, Cleveland Browns quarterback, threw an awful interception in the end zone. So the Raiders were lucky to be there, lucky to beat the Chargers. Yes, I'm bitter. And lucky to win the Super Bowl, because we, we said this before, Pete, Chargers already decimated a team, the New Orleans Saints, on that same Superdome turf. It, that turf was meant for Air Coriel. They would have exactly. blown the doors off of the Eagles. But unfortunately, just wasn't their time. They couldn't get over their uh, division rivals. And uh, the rest is history on the 80 season. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast so far. We did record this in one fell swoop, but we are – breaking this down into smaller, digestible morsels of sports goodness for your listening pleasure. So we will stop right now, and please join us for Episode 2, where we will explore the next several years of the San Diego Chargers. The No Cigar Podcast is by Pug and Monkey Productions. The title came from an idea from my son Eli Shaw, and I wish to thank not only my co-host, Tim Shaw, but also... Lobo and his band Checky Brown for generously lending us their song Hippie Boy to use as our theme song.